Cushing's disease is a very rare hormonal disorder. It's caused by a tumor on your pituitary gland that causes your adrenals to overproduce cortisol, which is the fight or flight hormone. And I've now been cured of that. They did do two surgeries and they weren't able to get the tumor off. So then the only other thing they can do is take your adrenals out at that point. So I don't have any adrenal glands, which makes me completely dependent on hormones to live. Some people have it where the tumor kicks in and it just goes up and up and up and they gain a bunch of weight and it's like progressively worse. Whereas mine, it was going up and down. And so I would have episodes where I had anxiety, panic attacks, and I'd gain weight. And then the cortisol would go down and I would lose a ton of weight and I would get really depressed and cry all the time. And I had no idea why, because, you know, if you have too much, it's like anxiety. If you don't have enough is depression. So it's like this crazy disease. Yeah. This is Martha Grover, an essayist whose recent collection, The End of My Career, was named an Oregon Book Award finalist for 2017. People that have diabetes can check their blood sugar and say, how much insulin should I take or what should I eat? I just have to guess because it's such a rare disease that it's not cost effective for them to create that technology because there's so few people that have my disease. There is something that's approved in Europe, uh, in the European Union, it's insulin pump. Uh, not insulin, I'm sorry. There is an insulin pump here, but there's also a cortisol pump that I could get installed. It's very like cyborg, you know, <laughs> basically like you have this pump that's like attached to your stomach all the time. It sounds awful to me, but I feel like if I went along and had problems, I could come to a decision where I was like, that would be a better alternative than having to always do this guesswork of like, how much cortisol do I need and blah, blah, blah. So... I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out, but it's not approved right now in the U.S. You're listening to The Staple, an arts and culture podcast, podcast presented, presented by, by the IPRC. For this episode, Martha reads from her new collection, an essay called Women's Studies Major. After the essay is a brief conversation we had about the piece and the many issues it brings up. The essay takes place last year when Martha had moved into her parents' duplex, and her sister had also moved in with her three kids. My parents owned a duplex, and I was renting half of it in a one-bedroom apartment. I had just gotten it all set up the way I wanted it to be. I had helped to get a kitchen installed and all of this, and then my sister decided to get a divorce and she moved into the other side of the house with her three children while she was separated from her, her you know, now ex-husband getting a divorce. So that all kind of came together at this, the same time. So without further ado, the radio version of Women's Studies Major, an essay by Martha Grover. All of my lovers have laid their terrible secrets at my feet. The unspeakable, the silly, the troubling, theft, cheating, despair, that time with their father's friend, the credit card debt, coke deals at the bowling alley, the accident, their specific shameful desires. Can I trust you was one question. Will you love me, was another. Without fail, I have offered up love in return. I thought it was intimacy, 
even if my shameful secret was that sometimes I really didn't want their shameful secrets. Taking off my clothes. My actual secrets are really secrets. He was abused. He was neglected. His parents didn't love him or each other. Oh, the ego. That we can balm the childhood. That we are sages smudging demons away. known this man for five days and I'm lying in his bed and he's pretending he is sleeping. Maybe he's pretending he's dead. I don't know. I feel alone and horny. I feel disgusting and dejected. Get up, Martha. I say to myself, put on your clothes and leave. It's that easy. You haven't done this since you were 27, since before you were sick. You have to start being the one to walk away first. I feel his confessions weighing on me. But I heave them off, get up, and pull on my dress and underwear. I'm leaving. I can't do this. He grabs my hand and makes a half-hearted attempt to talk me into staying, but we both know we've already ruined everything. I just need more affection. Feels like a secret, but it's only partly true. I can't even tell the whole truth. I drive aimlessly through his neighborhood. I finally hit Stark Street, get my bearings, and start towards home. I need love. There, I said it. I need love. It's not a secret anymore. I'm on a date with a recently divorced man. He looks like an ex-boyfriend of mine. Keeps stroking his face and yawning. He asks me what kind of music I like and then replies in a barely concealed monotone. Oh, really? Uh Uh-huh. The band plays a folksy version of No Diggity and we dance. He tells me I have some great moves and I say thanks. He never mentions his ex-wife. At my car, I ask to kiss him, but later it makes me sick that I was asking him for anything. I pull into a convenience store and buy a pack of cigarettes. I take one out and give the rest of them to a homeless woman sitting on the curb outside. I'm sitting on the toilet thinking about myself at age 16, clutching the steering wheel of my Subaru Jesty, idling at a stoplight in Gresham, Oregon. I don't look at the car next to me. The energy from the next car burns at me. I know they're staring. I'd learned to look straight ahead, to keep my head down. I'd learned that men at stoplights from the safety of their cars in the summertime with the windows rolled down in the mid-90s in Gresham make obscene gestures and rev their engines at young girls, at me. The gestures were an act of violence, more or less. This wasn't covered at the DMV. It wasn't part of my training. I was taught how to yield to follow the rules. And so I took to taking every compliment as an act of violence. I could not discern between the two. Eye contact and a smile, I'll kill you. Please acknowledge me, you are nothing. Avoidance of pain is more powerful than the pursuit of goals. 
a kiss, safety, love, self-regard. If you're not ready for the answer, don't ask the question. If the whole world wants to fuck me, why don't you love me? I asked my father to read an article about male entitlement and emotional labor. Can you just tell me what it says? He says. I haven't spoken to my father since our argument. I'm reading a book, All the Single Ladies. Maybe I don't want to get married. Maybe I'm actually okay not being in a relationship. Maybe I don't want to be monogamous. Maybe I'll never cohabitate again. I have nieces and nephews. Maybe I don't need to have kids. Maybe my female friendships and my relationships with my sisters will end up being the most important relationships of my life. I get up and get dressed. I put on my headphones and turn my Pandora station to Adele. As the rain breaks and the sun comes out, I walk down to the park and Chasing Pavements comes on. I see one man way off on the soccer field and another woman walking her dog. Who cares, I think. And I scream, sing as loudly as I can, jogging down the path. And the idea flashes across my brain. I decide that I will no longer support men. I'll not support their egos or their projects. I will not care if they like me. I will not listen to them. I will only offer simple, half-baked solutions when they bring up their interpersonal problems. I will say, just break up with her. I will say, just tell them you don't like that. I feel my heart exploding with possibilities. It's only women from today on out for one year. It will be my year without men. I will write a book about it. It will be a bestseller. I will not support male anything, unless it's in a sexual manner. They have their arena, and I have mine. If anyone asks me why I only work for women, I would just shrug and say it wasn't on purpose, it just ended up that way. If someone accuses me of hating men, I'll just smile and say, are you kidding? I love my dad, and I love Dick. But then I think of some of my male friends. I decide that I will make an exception for men of color and gay men, and my male family members and my publisher, and Leonard. A woman walks by me on the trail, and I smile at her so big she looks at me weird. It's not that I want to be like a man. I'm just not sure I want to be a woman anymore in the way that I was. I would never have gone on a date with him if I hadn't seen on his profile that he had a degree in women's studies. He makes cute jokes at his own expense. He tells me about being a drummer in a metal band. He tells me that his ex-wife had been a drug addict and much older than him, that she had told him to marry her and join the army. He was shipped off to Iraq. He tells me he and his son are very close. He tells me he has PTSD from the war. I tell him I also have mild PTSD from having had Cushing's disease probably since when I was in utero. He tells me if you aren't working on yourself, getting therapy, that's a deal breaker. I tell him my last therapist traumatized me. I'm sorry that happened to you, he says. I tell him I'll give him some of the pot cookies I've made. I guess that means we're going to see each other again, he says. He reaches across the table and grabs my hand. It's decisive and attractive. When we kiss, I feel a sigh of relief. He backs away and puts his hands on his head. Oh my God. Are you okay? I giggle. 
I haven't been kissed like that in years, he says. A week passes. The women's studies major texts me. He tells me he isn't ready to get involved with me or anyone. I go on more bad dates. Everyone is named the same name as my dad, which is also my brother's name. One guy I've been messaging, I find out later, likes to dress up like a pirate regularly. Can't sleep with someone who dresses up like a pirate. Another one is so sour-faced and negative, I leave before we even get our drinks. Another man keeps interrupting me and arguing with me. After our date, I shiver and shake all the way home, exhausted and confused. When I get home, I find a yoga video on YouTube and yawn and stretch for an hour. I go on a date with someone who kisses me very badly. I can't understand why he even bothered. And I can't stop thinking about the women's studies major. I text him and ask him if we can be friends. If we can be Facebook friends. My body is changing. I'm on estrogen and progesterone. I'm working out every day. My legs lose all their fat. My waist is becoming defined. Sometimes in planks and downward dogs, I look at my little belly hanging there. It's cute. My hair is getting thick and curly. I start taking Wellbutrin. I cry because everything seems so beautiful, because I finally feel safe in my body. Because my voice is getting stronger and louder, I orgasm more easily, I drive faster, I smell and taste and feel things as being more intense, sensual, delicious. I feel like I'm high, but then I think, maybe this is just what being healthy feels like. And then I get sad because I've missed so much. I've spent so many years as a larva. I buy a cherry red Honda Coupe. It has a sunroof. The women's studies major texts me and tells me that all my adventures on Facebook make him want to go on them with me. I reply, my plan is working then. We go down to my secret spot on the river and make out. He's strong. It feels good to let him move my body into different positions. He kisses my neck. I nearly come in his arms. I'm still not really speaking to my father because he still refuses to read the article. We have a big fight. I tell him that if he would just read the article, he would realize how ridiculous he's being. You keep saying, read the article, read the article. What is it about? I storm out of the room, and then several days later, we pretend like nothing happened. The women's studies major texts me and tells me he's sorry to hear about my friend who died, and how am I doing? We make plans for me to spend the night at his new place that Saturday. He tells me that it can be a non-sexual sleepover. Before we meet up, I have dinner with my friends Kate and Mark. Mark says he has never met someone with the women's studies major's name who hasn't been a total douchebag. I know. He's a women's studies major, though, I say. Mark laughs. That can be either good or really bad. He's one of the good ones, I say. Later that night, I follow the women's studies major to his new place. He's just moved in. His son is at his mom's house. The small house is dark and stacked with boxes. 
A huge canister of muscle milk sits on the counter by the refrigerator. I take off my clothes while he's out of the room, crawl into his bed. There's nothing in the room but his bed, a nightstand, and some boxes. He undresses and gets under the covers with me. He begins to touch me all over my body, bending over me and kissing my stomach, caressing me. It feels natural and good. Can I take these off, he asks. Yes, I say. He pulls down my underwear and asks me if he can go down on me. I'm not ready for that, I say. It's too intimate. Will you touch me? We touch each other. I put his penis in my mouth and touch myself. He keeps telling me how good it feels. I have no trouble coming. Do you want to have sex, I ask. I don't want to pressure you. I know you just got out of a relationship. Oh, I'm ready, he says, smiling. By the way, I had a vasectomy. I laugh. Do you have a condom? When we fuck, it hurts. We lay in bed talking, and he strokes my back. He thanks me. He says he needed that. We talk about growing up poor. He tells me he used to run around with a group of thugs that would beat up skinheads, anti-racist punks. I tell him I know about the racism problem in Oregon. This town is crawling with Nazis, he says. It all went south when one of his friends was shot by a Nazi and ended up in a wheelchair. We didn't want to get the cops involved, he says. We never got the guy that did it, though. You regret that decision? I don't hang out with those guys anymore. Why do you think you were drawn to that? He looks exhausted by the question and lets out a sigh. I giggle. You're going to have to get used to this. I ask a lot of questions. He looks at the ceiling. I have a lot of training. I thought I could keep people from getting into trouble. When I leave, I notice the baseball bat by the door. A couple days later, I text him late at night about the dinner we are going to have on Saturday and how I'm thinking about his dick in my mouth. He's been texting me every day. I almost go to Ikea with him to pick up new furniture for his house, but decide against it because it seems too relationshipy. Talking about dicks over text is fine. Ikea and dicks do make me think about meatballs. I ask him if he wants meatballs for dinner on Saturday. I'm cat-sitting out in Happy Valley. I'm happy to be away from our crowded duplex, my parents, my sister Anna and her kids coming and going on the other side of my wall. After I work out, I go upstairs into the large room where I am staying and look out the large windows at the rolling hills covered in trees and enormous houses. They seem to go on forever. It's weird out here. This house is probably at least 6,000 square feet, the room I'm staying in has a bathroom with skylights in it, a tiled shower with a glass door. It's another world, and I feel different here. I have a grower out in Tillamook who gives me butter and oil and lots of weed. I make pans of cookies, wrap them up in green plastic wrap, and stack them in my freezer. After I give one to my friend Casey, he sends me a text of an emoji rainbow skull melting. One bite, he texts. I don't generally like being high. It makes me panicky and paranoid, even without adrenals. I look all over the place for the charger to my vape pen, but can't find it. I must have left it back at my apartment in Gresham. 
I take one of the pot cookies out of the freezer and set it on the granite countertop at the house in Happy Valley. I take a butter knife and shave the tiniest corner off the cookie and eat it along with some dinner. I turn on the TV and start watching the end of the Sanders-Clinton debate. I don't feel anything, so I go back to the kitchen and break off a tiny bit more of the cookie. When I start giggling over a pretzel commercial, I know the cookie is starting to kick in. I am way too high. I think about Saturday, the women's studies major coming over, how he's texting me every day, the sexy outfit I have picked out. Maybe it's too sexy. Maybe this is all about sex. Maybe I shouldn't lead with sex. I hate this. This always happens when I get too high. I get paranoid and my heart races. It reminds me of being sick and anxious all the time. Does anyone know he's coming over here? I'm all alone out here in this huge house. What do I actually know about the women's studies major? He's already told me that he went around beating up Nazis for fun. And he has a teenage son. It's totally irresponsible. What is this anyway? Are we suddenly in a relationship? I've already told him I'm going to see other people. I told him I don't want to jump into anything. He said he doesn't want to either. He said what I do on my own time is none of his business. And yet, he's texting me every day. It's dark now, and my hands and the tip of my nose are going cold. I put on several layers and crawl into bed. I pull my laptop up onto the blankets and go to YouTube. I watch a TED talk about beauty. The speaker is a beautiful black woman. She describes beauty as being a racialized concept and that it excludes the disabled and the fat. It excludes a lot of people. I think about my own blonde hair and blue eyes. I think about how I used to be fat and now still have problems with body image. I think about how we should say, I find you beautiful instead of you are beautiful. I think, what harm is it to Google the women's studies major? When I was in middle school, my father once had a traveling salesperson come into his real estate office selling mace. He told us about it that night, recounting some of the statistics about violence against women the man had shared in his sales pitch. He had purchased one can of mace in a little leather pouch on a key ring. He gave it to my mother. Mostly, I remember the fear in my father's face, and then the feeling I had, the feeling of embarrassment that he should have already known all those statistics, that women are in danger. I know I knew. All I had to do was watch TV. A WordPress page with his name in the address pops up. I click on the link. At first, I can't really absorb what I'm looking at. The page recounts an incident in 2003 when the women's studies major hit his wife in the head, kicked her in the back, threatened to kill her, and was charged with menacing and assault in the fourth degree. My heart starts to race as I scroll down. The narrative continues with the women's studies major own testimony about the abuse he inflicted on his wife. He was forced to go through a diversionary program for abusers and apparently was forced to write this account as part of the program. He admits to physically threatening his wife at the time, trying to control her emotional manipulation, 
throwing things at her, pushing her, kicking her, and a long list of emotional and physical abuse. The website was put together by the friend of a woman who was in a relationship with a women's studies major in 2011. He choked her and did all manner of things to her, including threatening to kill her pets. The friend put up the website to warn other women. Hello? Oh my God, Mom, I'm so glad you're still awake. First off, I just want to tell you that I'm very high. Okay. I ate too much of one of my pot cookies, and then I found out the guy that I've been seeing is an abuser and threatened to kill his wife. Wait, what? I looked him up on the internet, and he's been arrested for domestic abuse. He's a total abuser. He's abusive? I hear my sister in the background. Anna wants to talk to you. She hands the phone to my sister. Anna and I have a long conversation, and I tell her all about it. Until the end of the conversation, I'm too high to realize that she's mostly placating me and just thinks I'm totally high and catastrophizing. We hang up 45 minutes later. I text my friend Ladina and we text back and forth for half an hour. I tell her I'm going to confront him in the morning and tell him I don't want to see him anymore. She says she doesn't know if that's a good idea. I send an email to all my closest friends telling them how scared I am and how I have to stay out here in Happy Valley two more nights and I'm freaking out. Wait, what? And would someone come out to stay with me? I deactivate my Facebook account. I deactivate my OkCupid account. I make my Instagram private. I block the two men who started following my selfies on Instagram from my Tinder profile. I don't sleep all night. My friend Aisha calls in the morning. She tells me it's very unlikely that he'll do anything. She doesn't think I should tell him I know about the website. Dudes do it all the time, she says. Just cancel your date for tomorrow. Tell him you're sick. If he texts, respond very neutrally. A few days later, if he keeps texting, make up some bullshit thing about how you have to focus on yourself. I nod. I'm staring at the floor in the living room waiting for my mom to come over. I feel like I can't sleep unless I know someone is here with me. I've just taken my morning dose of hydrocortisone and I feel insane. Look, I realize that he probably won't do anything, but I have PTSD from my Cushing's disease. My voice starts to crack. I catastrophize. That's what I do. I can't help it. Plus, I found out all of this because I got high and paranoid. I wouldn't have even Googled him if I hadn't gotten way too high. Oh, honey, Ayesha laughs. You don't have to confront him for the sisterhood, she says. You have to stay safe for the sisterhood. I spend the next two hours on the phone. I call Kate, I call Anne-Marie, I call Sarah, I call Michael, I call Lisa, I call Jesse, I call Kat, I call Kasia, I call Taya, I call Ladina. I feel loved, but I also feel hysterical. My mom arrives and makes me get off the phone. She gives me some Benadryl and tells me to go get some rest already. As I drift off into sleep, I stare at the open closet door my dresses hanging in a row, my bras in a jumble on the dresser. 
I felt confused. I wonder if somehow I conjured the women's studies major into existence. I can't see his face, like a painting that's been defaced, a pharaoh with his eyes jagged out. What's left are facts, tattoos, traumas, degrees, stories, not a person, just a collection of half-truths swirling around fear. The exhaustion and Benadryl take over, and then I'm asleep, dreaming of my sisters, or running in the grass. Sarah's asking me what I need. We can't find Rachel. I wake up. It's 5 p.m. Claudette comes out to stay the night with me. We make dinner together and talk about abuse, the police, violence. Our culture doesn't care about women's lives, Claudette says. She assures me that the women's studies major won't do anything. Abusers are, at heart, very insecure. He wants to make sure you won't leave him before he tries to do anything. You're not invested enough. You're not in love with him. It's just so weird, I say. He's a total sociopath. But the funny thing is, he really is a women's studies major. That wasn't a lie. The scariest thing, Claudette says, is that someone you thought you knew isn't at all who you thought they were. I know a woman who was raped by someone she met on OkCupid. I know a woman who almost married a guy she met on OkCupid. He then went on to murder his wife and kill himself. He was a neurosurgeon. I start reading about emotional abuse. I realize at some level, I've been emotionally abusive to my father. It's not his fault he's triggering me. I find some therapists who deal with trauma and start making phone calls. The women's studies major texts me and says he doesn't know what he did to drive me away. I text him not to worry about it and to take care. My mother regularly has dreams where she's searching for a baby. Sometimes it's my sister Rachel. Sometimes it's me. Sometimes it's just an unnamed baby. My worst fear is that I will wake up one night and I will know inexplicably that one of my six sisters has just been murdered by an ex-lover. Our bodies connected like tree roots. I smell warnings in the wind. We grew up jealous of each other. We grew up in love with each other. We grew up comparing hair color, stomachs, periods, eyes, toes. My sister, now in the throes of her divorce, tells me that the unconscious is given too much credit, that these confessions are tools, not gifts, but manipulation, a truth to use against you later. I told you I was a thief. I told you I was a cheater. I told you I couldn't live without you. Far away, there are earthquakes. Far away, a baby is misplaced. Our roots send messages. We gather together. One thing I wanted to, 
that I was wondering about with this essay. Yeah. Um, we've all been through breakups, and I think everyone's been through this sudden breakup where either you're the person that has ended it and you're not going to even tell them why, it just has, mm-hmm. or it's happened to you. And regardless, even if you're the person ending it, and even in this situation where it was like for safety, you need to get away. Mm-hmm. There would still be that kind of sadness because you you shared so much, and I was wondering if if it's sort of comforting the idea like well maybe he'll read this now and know well this is why. It's not comforting at no. all. I don't care what he thinks. I just don't want him to hurt me or anyone I know. If he reads it seriously, he'll probably go, "Huh, she thought I was good in bed. That's great." <laughs> Gross. I mean, yeah, I don't know the guy, but yeah, I, wow. I, I think that's probably what. I mean, who knows? He'll he's moved on to his next victim at this point. Yeah. That's who he was. He was mm-hmm. a predator. For me, hearing that a guy is a women's studies major would be an immediate red flag. I'd be like, I don't trust this guy at all. See, for I have a problem with that because mm-hmm. almost every guy I've ever talked to about it has said the exact same thing to me. And as a woman, and I don't think it's just naivete. I think it's this idea that we would hope that it would be a worthy subject for everyone. In reality, I don't think it should be called women's studies. I think it should be called gender studies. And we all have a gender. We could get into it, but patriarchy hurts men almost as much as it hurts women, you know, in a way. And so it's framed as like, oh, it's a women's thing. Oh, it's tampon studies major or something. That's my perspective. The other perspective is that those guys and you are right because- I was in a place emotionally when I met this guy that I was just set up like pins and he was just ready to knock it down, you know, because of all the things that had happened. My sister was going through a really nasty divorce and uh, she was in a marriage of 20 years that ended. And it was a very sad, grieving experience for me to have kind of lost my brother-in-law, someone that I'd known for 20 years since I was 16. And so in a weird way, if this person was a sociopath, I gave him the green light because of this major, you know, this this interest and kind of ignored all these other red flags. Mm-hmm. And so that's the kind of person that's going to fall for that is almost a, is a wounded person, really. Right. You know, it's a wounded person. Mm-hmm. So and that's the sad part that I only realized in hindsight. Does your dad read your books or does he ask you to explain them first? <laughs> Well, this book in particular, I told my my mom was fine with reading it. My dad, I was like, I don't expect you to read it because there's a lot of sex in it. And I just am going to send you the parts where I mention you and you can give thumbs up or thumbs down. And he just gave thumbs up. I'm fine with it. But I told the same thing to my grandparents. They said, oh, I want a copy of your book. And I was like, well, I just want to let you know that you I don't expect you to read it or like it or anything because it's a lot of you know sex and stuff like that. And my grandma said, sex, why would you want to write about that? And I said, well, why do I want to write about anything? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of poop in the book, too, you know? So. There is. <laughs> That's something that I, I was noticing, that there's a lot. It was in your previous book, too, a lot of mm. diarrhea and a lot of... <laughs> do you ever worry, like, oh, I'm making myself more vulnerable or... Undateable. That's what you really want to say. No. <laughs> I wasn't thinking that. No, because... <laughs> I haven't written nearly as much autobiographical stuff mm-hmm. as you. Yeah. But anything I write, whether fiction or non, I always kind of tiptoe around sex. I'm going to s- say that it happens mm-hmm. and then I want to skip it. You did it really well where it doesn't feel vulgar. 
it shows the intimacy that's happened, but also shows a really important perspective from a woman. Was it difficult to reveal so much? Well, the second, I think it's the second essay in the book, the one about the truth about pheromones. That was the first time I'd ever like really written about sex. And it was like really weird sex too in that story. But it was so crucial to like telling that story because it was all about me trying to figure out why I even had sex with that guy. And so I wrote it. And then like two days later, I read it at a reading in front of people. And it was like mostly guys. I was like adrenaline rush, you know, not in necessarily a good way. But it kind of like made me go, oh, you can do this. And like, if you're going to write about dating people, like it's kind of necessary to like talk about sex because, and especially if it's like sex that's defining of the interaction that you have with a certain person. So that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, but it wasn't something I really did when I first spoke at all. For me, I could appreciate how suddenly scary it is. Like, well, you've done all this stuff with this person and then suddenly there's somebody else. Yeah. And without the sex in there, it would have been, I think, more flat. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, whatever, just Mm -hmm. be done with him. Well, and there's also this thing that Dan Savage said that I really love. He makes this point as a gay man that I think is really important, which is that if you've always been the penetrator and never been the penetratee, there's a certain side of sex that you don't really understand and that you are really making yourself very vulnerable to someone else and you're allowing them to put something inside of your body, you know, and it's it's taxing in a way on you that it's not taxing on a heterosexual man. I think that's really important and I think that's something that I've, I've had a problem with explaining this story to a lot of heterosexual men and that they, they just think, oh, it's some skeezy guy that you met who turned out to be a skeezy guy. But it's like, no, I allowed this person to put themselves inside of my body. And then they turned out to be a sociopath. For some reason, that reminds me of somewhere in the book where you talked about going to a really early shift at work at like 5 Mm a.m. and some guy calls you over to his car Mm -hmm. with kind of suspicious question. And you didn't go to his car and you Mm -hmm. told the police immediately and told your dad. Mm I told my grandpa. A grandpa, thank you. And both your grandpa and the policeman had the similar response. They just made it so light. Yeah. That must be so frustrating when these people that are supposed to be protectors are just making jokes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that was a real eye-opener for me. It was very weird to have... I mean, it wasn't so weird to have a cop be insensitive, whatever. They deal with stuff like that all the time, and they're more just... Are you under threat? No. And then it's like, oh, okay, I don't have to worry about you. But then when my grandpa said the exact same thing, it was like, oh, wow, you actually fundamentally don't understand what that experience was like for me to be driven off the road at five in the morning and then potentially, I mean, who knows what that guy would have done to me if I'd gone over to the car, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I feel like right in this time that we're living a lot of mainly white males, our eyes are being opened to a lot of things that mm-hmm. we're not part mm-hmm. of, not just from women, but mm-hmm. a lot of groups. Mm-hmm. I lived in Amsterdam in the Netherlands for five years, and things are a lot better there in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize it so much until I came back. And two things hit me, like in the airport, I saw an elderly man working as a security guard. Mm-hmm. And that broke my heart because old people don't work there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, they have to Old people have to work here. Yeah. And then I got to the neighborhood and I saw joggers everywhere. And I was like, that's such a cute American thing. Everyone jogs and they dress like athletes. But then I noticed (laughs) half of the joggers had dogs. 
oh, because they don't feel safe. And I never noticed it before. Mm. Mm. Um, I was hoping that would lead into a question. <laughs> uh, well, this was... Do you remember a moment when you first realized that women are unsafe? Well, I think like in the essay, I realized I wasn't safe, you know, like as a teenager, I felt like, oh, I'm not safe. Mm -hmm. But when I realized women weren't safe, I think that's a good question because there is that part in the essay where I'm like embarrassed because my dad just seems, this just seems to be dawning on him, or at least that was the way I was perceiving it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it was mostly those like uh, 2020 mystery shows. You know, the murder victims are almost always women. They're almost always women. And they're usually killed by someone they know, which is statistically true as well, that women are usually killed by someone they know. Right. You know, boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, husband. I'm always embarrassed when I hear stuff like that because like I watch the same show, but it never dawned on me like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm just like, yeah. oh, what a scary show. Yeah. And, and those kind of things almost sort of, not so much inform you that there's this weird thing that half the population's in danger, but they more just say, this is just how it is. Right. It's normalized. Yeah. So yeah. I'm wondering, was there a point later on when you realized, yeah, but that's not okay? Well, I don't think I ever felt like it was okay. I don't think I had it, this, the feeling of righteous rage, though, mm -hmm. until I became more educated about those statistics and about feminism and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I never felt like it was okay, you know? I've always known like we live in a really sexist country. And so it just makes me sad that the election turned out the way it is. But I think fear wise, and this is something that I've talked to a lot of women about, the fact that Trump was elected after talking about sexually assaulting women, it's been very traumatizing because it's brought up all those memories of all those women that have been sexually assaulted and seeing how it was initially framed as not being sexual assault. And then thinking back on my own life and going, oh, wait, I, oh, yeah, I've been sexually assaulted like many, many times. And that is what it was. And so it's just, it's very, it's, yeah, it was very traumatizing. And then also as a chronically ill person, um, I would say that has been more of the eye-opening thing of like thinking about, well, what if they get, what are they going to do with the Affordable Care Act? And where does that leave me as someone that's, completely dependent on medication. And also, what does it say about a society that fundamentally doesn't care if people are going to die? The last essay in my book, or the second to last, is called The Five Stages. Mm -hmm. And it's about the five stages of grief and like coming to terms with Portland becoming so gentrified, yeah. especially as someone that has lived there their whole life. And I was talking to my sister like a week after the election, and she's like, we've all complained about like, no, we don't want any more people to move here. We don't want it to change. And I'm just like, come, come to Portland. We want you, we want to protect you. Talking to some of my gay friends, this has always been a sanctuary city in a way. And where they came from was so much crappier. It's my privilege to go, I don't want you here. <laughs> I wish I want everything to always stay the same. We need places like this where people are at least safer than they are in other places. It was a real big reality check. That's your privilege to be like, oh, they're tearing down my bar, which is also at the same time, yes, it is legitimately, it's a grief if you've lived here and you see where you your home has changed. That is a grief, but also like, what's the bigger picture, especially now? The music in this episode was made by In Love With A Ghost, Hiroto Kudo, 
and Lucy in Disguise. Links to their albums can be found on our website. I want to express my deep gratitude to Martha for her trust in letting me edit her essay for radio. Definitely read the full piece in her collection, The End of My Career, available now from Perfect Day Press. This episode was edited and produced by myself, Sunny Bleckinger, with editorial support from Jacob Aiello and Shanna Sees. Special thanks to Kim Legler, who played the part of Martha's sister in Background Phone. Martha's mom was played by Martha's mom. In exactly 15 seconds, Kim will give us her rendition of Adele's Pavement. Questions and comments? Email us at podcast at iprc.org. Thanks for listening. Okay. <laughs> no more screaming. And can you face me? Yeah.